0: Two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello, and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and today I am joined by Kyle Rowe. He is the former strategic advisor for the City of Seattle Department of Transportation and current Global Head of Government at SPIN. SPIN is the micro-mobility unit coming out of the Ford Motor Company. They provide electric scooters in more than 60 markets in the U.S., very much like so many bike-sharing programs. It costs $1 to unlock a scooter and 15 cents per minute following that. And today, we will talk public-private partnerships, open data, and how he plans to advance government collaboration. Hello, Kyle, and thanks for joining us.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: All right. So let's, let's get right into it. Now, I believe that one of the things that you developed in Seattle was something called an open permit, which in a way streamlines traditional procurement and the RFB processes. Can you tell us a little bit more about this?
1: Yeah, it's a great way to summarize it. And um, it makes it sound so simple. Uh, But (laughs) man, if you work in government, you know that procurement is a bureaucratic beast uh, forced to be reckoned with. Situation in Seattle and during the summer of 2017 was um, a bit dire in that we had to shut down our public bike share scheme, the Pronto system. Which looked a lot like what other major U.S. cities had and many still have: uh, Divi in Chicago, Capital Bike Share in D.C., City Bike in New York, so on and so forth. Um, similar operating model, funding model, relationship between the white label um, hardware and technology provider and city government and their funds made available to operate it. So, like kind of like a transit system with a private operator, of uh, the bike share system. Um, for many reasons, which is a uh, maybe a whole other podcast on its own, um, we had to shut down that that operation. And at the same time, there was this new emerging technology um, coming out of China, primarily that was enabling the bikes to be um, parked wherever the user wanted to be and not based off of a station. And uh, the the interesting thing about this this technology was that it, it took a lot, of, a lot of the capital costs away from the system and allowed for private companies to potentially um, fund and operate the service without any public subsidies.
0: And, and real quick, you're referring to a dockless network, whereas a bike or something like that actually has to park themselves somewhere. And I think one of the terms is uh, being dock blocked. You're riding a bike or a scooter and you really have nowhere else to, to, to park it when you're done with it, right?
1: Yeah, both technicians have their own challenges. Um, But one of the challenges that came with the station-based technology was that if you went to a station and every bay was full, you couldn't end your trip. Mm -hmm. And so companies tried to create these stop gaps where you could go to the kiosk and plug in your user ID and get 15 more minutes to find a station nearby. And it's like really taken away from user convenience when in the end, someone's trying to create an A to B trip and not drive. Um, So anyways, I mean, you know, it's hard to, to put it on those hardware providers. That was a technology available to them at the time. But um, uh, GPS tracking and you know, basically the batteries getting smaller and lighter were able, allowed uh, companies to basically put all of that smart infrastructure on the bike and not in the station mm-hmm. and allowed them to um, operate these fleets of bikes without needing the capital infrastructure. And that's, I mean, our cars that we operate in our cities, you could argue are dockless. They we park them in a way that's compliant based off of policy and sometimes infrastructure in the form of paint and signs that say this is a parking lane. Um, but we do not hitch our cars to a post when we park them. Um, it's it's oh. no
0: longer it's no longer a horse. <laughs> exactly <laughs> you need the, the water trough and everything.
1: Although right, right. although
0: the uh, electric vehicles.
1: Ooh, Good point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe. We might. Well, but then there's inductive charging, so we might just have those things be oh. charged right out of. The concrete. I mean, it's yeah. it's, a, it's a cyclical world. Um, <laughs> <It's> all right. <laughs> so, so you yeah.
0: Open permits. You had this problem with Pronto, and all of a sudden, you got to come up with a creative solution because of this great new technology coming out of China. You were saying.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had to create the solution because we were entering the summer, which is Seattle's a very seasonal market for people biking, walking, you know, not driving given the the rainy winter, and so um, to really continue towards that mode shift goal that the city had, all cities have, Um, we had to bring something to the the public for that summer. And there was both an opportunity to bring this new technology to the market, but also showcase what a different relationship between the private company and the public agency would look like. And it was somewhere between that single vendor RFP long-term contract model that defined the station-based bike share and the uber and lyft showing up unannounced operating competitive between the private operators and with little regulatory oversight almost no regulatory oversight at the local level but some at the state level and we what we went for was somewhere smack dab in the middle that asked vendors to come in operate their service um, without public subsidy actually we charge them small fees um, to fund the oversight of the program and compete amongst other operators, we had three operators that summer in in uh, 2017, um, but still abide by some operating requirements in the market that gave us the control that I think every city in the U.S. wish they would have had the opportunity to do when TNCs Uber and Lyft expanded across the U.S. and in many markets kind of cannibalized transit ridership. Um, so. That was, it was an opportunity to kind of bring bikes back to the market and showcase a regulatory framework that hadn't really been tested in the U.S. and also challenged different shared mobility industries to think more, um, I guess, more responsibly about that public-private partnership.
0: Would would you characterize this open permit system, this new way of doing things more like a zoning system where these providers could essentially it would be allowable to park the bicycle or the scooters, I should say, not the bikes. There's a big difference between the scooters and the bikes. I want to make sure I, I'm clear on that. That would allow these providers, people, to park these scooters on city property, and and certain city property is zoned for that. Is that a good way of characterizing this open permit?
1: Yeah. So very very much. That's that's the open permit structure. It's granting access to park to store the vehicles in the public right of way, but in in turn for giving the companies this access, we ask that they follow some um, some standards, some operating standards, basically addressing misparked vehicles um, or or maintenance expectations. So we don't want a a, a scooter um, or a bike in the right of way that is not working properly to be on the sidewalk for more than a certain period of time because it's not serving any good to the public. In fact, it could be a, a obstructing user. So it's, it's about defining those operating requirements. And in turn, we will let you store your products and access the market um, with our public right-of-way. Now, then that kind of begs the question, what part of the right-of-way? So we are pretty prescriptive um, on where, on the right-of-way users could, users and companies could store their vehicles. And one benefit I had going into that is prior to working in shared mobility, my my work at SDOT was mostly on in building the bike network, both the lanes and the parking. So from having worked with the engineers in SDOT to understand how to deploy um, a, a bike rack program, a bike parking program, enabled me to really quickly kind of prescribe the dockless parking environment in a way that should be compliant if vendors and the public could learn the, the, um, the policies. And given that I think you and I could both fly to Kansas City right now, rent a car, go downtown, and probably park it correctly, I was optimistic that folks could learn that. It doesn't happen quickly, but it, it, with good education, with reminders, with enforcement, we can get the public to understand there is a location to park a bike. It may not require a bike rack. And if you go to the leading cities for biking in the world, I mean, really Amsterdam, Amsterdam and Copenhagen, folks don't park to a bike rack. They all use wheel locks, and they put them in a furniture zone between the pedestrian pathway and the travel lane for cars, and they park them to themselves and leave them uh, in the right-of-way, not fixed to an object. And if you look in I, – I, I encourage uh, listeners to go to Google Maps, go to the random street in Amsterdam, turn on the aerial image not the base map from from google um or your your favorite mapping uh software you don't have to use google maps so i'm sure there's a lot of people <laughs> we're, we're, given, given the audience i'm sure there's a lot of people platform agnostic, in it.
0: right of course
1: yeah, yeah, exactly i had to remind myself of the audience here um and you i i bet you could draw a perfect square around all the bikes being parked on the sidewalk there and that's 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 user education that's that's good policy that's that's um infrastructure built for that mode over, over many years. So we're, we're kind of in the first inning of doing that in the US. And so there's obviously been some challenges along the way.
0: actually, so there's so much that I want to unpack there. And I'm going to try and stay on topic a little bit. But I do have to ask, it's been a couple of years that you've done this. And I can understand that, at least from a corporate citizen perspective, it would be easier for them to learn and accept these policy guidelines that you've issued. Um, how has the public reacted? How has the, the uptake, at least in Seattle, during your time there, um, has, how have they adhered to these policy? And, and conversely, how has the private sector, these, these scooter sharing companies, adhered to your restrictions <laughs> or your demands that, let's say if a, a member of the public parks a, a scooter in the wrong spot, I'm assuming they got to
1: move it. hmm Yep.
0: Have the private companies been doing that? Uh, has the public been good generally in following your policies?
1: I'll do. I'll do my best to answer uh, about my experiences both at Seattle and Spin, and not <laughs> not maybe the industry as a whole. Um, so it's funny you ask that when we when when we officially kind of like hit go with that. You program mean in, in Seattle, Seattle or
0: Spin or your pro- in your Seattle. program? Seattle.
1: Well, it's funny. Spin was the first to launch. Spin launched oh. two weeks before any other company. I. I handed Spin and Lime their first permits they ever had. Um, Spin was a little bit uh, ahead of the game on Ready to Launch, and they launched, I think, like a week and a half before Lime, and then Ofo came a month or two later. Um, but the, the next day after the first launch, um, I got just really sick. I was like I, I was out of the office for like a week and a half and i think i just like had this weight on my body of like oh my god what did i just unleash on the city <laughs> <laughs> and and it like actually put me like out of office for like a week and so all of these questions were come flooding in of in- interpretations of policies and who's gonna enforce that and mayor's office wants to know this and i was just out of office it was uh it was unfortunate but i think i, Bad I felt- timing eh? <laughs> well, i think i felt that weight of like Oh boy, Uh, people are going to park thousands of bikes and they're not going to be required to lock them. Everyone's going to go crazy. Um, So I, I, you know, I truly believe the average customer of a dockless bike or scooter user has good intentions and wants to park the vehicle correctly. And in certain cases, they are set up for success. Um, In some cases, they are not. Like, for example, due to some feedback from the mayor's office at the time, uh, I was encouraged to put in a requirement that users could not park on soft surfaces, basically like planted median, planted um, uh, furniture zones. So if you had a planting strip where the space between the pedestrian pathway and the asphalt for driving existed, you couldn't park there. And in Seattle, at least, most residential streets, including my residential street outside my house, um, is fully planted. So there's actually no concrete or asphalt or paver, no hard surface where you could park compliantly. Um, so in that case, you're you're asking, you're giving the user the convenience of going A to B. They certainly have a place where they could park a car on this street, but they don't have a place where they could park a bike or a scooter compliantly on that street. So that's part of our infrastructure being a little bit maybe outdated or um, focused on urban design um, uh, criteria or. Um, you know just a, a theory older theory of urban design where we didn't imagine using the furniture zone in so many different ways that I think uh, we're being challenged to do nowadays with diverse vehicles kind of being used in pretty um, vast quantities but since you know since that original launch in 2017 cities all across the U.S. have been embraced dockless bikes and scooters um, I think every single city has seen a lot of challenges in the first couple months. Some of them may be amplified by media. Some of them may be really valid and in, in truly challenging experiences. Um, the, the, uh, you know, the ADA user, the disability community of uh, using our sidewalks is absolutely the standard for how we think about pedestrian access. It has to be. So a bike or a scooter blocking them is the worst outcome of someone using our service. We want to be aligned with those users in terms of moving towards um, a safer transportation ecosystem and not obstructing their their use. Um, But we're also on the same team of getting more people out of cars and using other modes and safer modes. So um, I think after the first couple of months of your typical city launch, things usually cool down. And I do think that the companies involved are, are trying their best. I have well, to be honest, some companies took a launch and expansion strategy that wasn't really reflective of the timing needed to address some of the initial challenges. It's something that we've really focused on at Spin, both launching with permission and scaling responsibly have been two core tenants of our, we call it our partnership promise, just how we do business with cities um so that's one thing i wish our industry would have done better but you know a lot of folks came and adopted that uber and lyft playbook and just applied it to a new technology and so therefore you saw these things kind of just spread rapidly and maybe a little bit too quickly in some cases
0: i have to admit uh uh, one of the things that i came to appreciate when i was researching for for this episode was that you're not barging into cities like uber has and and bullying governments in a certain way. And one of the things that I think about is like some companies take the term disruption perhaps a little too literally. And I'm curious to know with Spin, I know you sort of came in a little bit after the fact, but what was sort of the reasoning that you guys adopted a more collaborative approach as opposed to this sort of barging in Uber approach? What was the reasoning behind that? Or what is the reasoning behind that?
1: There's, okay. There's, there's really two main reasons behind this. There's the reason that is simply we believe in it. It's our value. Um, and, and that value was hard to sell to VCs. Um, I wasn't uh, personally responsible for selling these things to the VCs, but I just saw um, companies abiding by a different playbook, um, you know, getting the uh, attention in the venture capital world and the startup world quicker. And we took a different tone with our approach. The second thing, and the one that's more important almost is the fact that it actually aligns with our business model, because the way that I designed Seattle's first pilot in 2017, and the way that the industry has um, grown to take that kind of regulatory framework, evolve it and improve it gives so much power to the city to control how the system works, how many vehicles you have on the right of way, what hours you operate, what areas are geofenced, how penalties will be enforced, how fleet reductions could be issued if you're not compliant. Such that if you're not valuing the partnership you have with your city, with the DOT, with the program manager, to the mayor, to the electeds, to the community, to the customer base, you're you're gonna you're gonna realize those. Um, the, the challenges you've created for yourself in your, in your uh, P&L, your, 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 your revenue, because the city will revoke your permit or they'll slap up a, a heavy penalty or they'll take away half your fleet. And um, by growing spin across the U S each time giving um, the city the kind of tools to effectively manage their streets because they know them best. We've been able to align a successful business model with local control and partnership. That's gotten out of hand sometimes. I mean, certain cities have come to us and given us requirements or fees and that that we had to say, listen, this doesn't work for us. We're simply not going to be able to operate a sustainable business or we think this is a vast overreach of how you manage our product. You're not paying us. So this doesn't make sense. But in most cases, I think that cities have really adopted this uh, nuanced regulatory framework that kind of um, balances Previous models and does it well. So I'm I'm actually really encouraged by the way, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, uh, policymakers have have brought us into market.
0: So let's get back more specifically into the weeds here and talk about public-private partnerships because they are, and can be very controversial. But at the same time, as I know a bit about public-private partnerships or P3s as they're known they're like ice cream. There's all kinds of different flavors of P3s. You could build hospitals, you could build transportation networks like LRTs and subways and whatnot. and, And you can have a bike sharing or scooter sharing program like what Spin is all about. So my first question for you is just generally, how would you characterize a P3? What is a P3 in your books?
1: P3 in my books is a private company it could be a nonprofit that operates a service, but mostly a private company and a public agency, recognizing a shared goal and developing a working relationship that enables both of them to be successful and work towards that shared goal. And has uh, a a plan, execute, evaluate type of of uh, cyclical nature to it, such that at some sort of time scale, the design of the program is improved upon and and then deployed in its improved state. So it's, it's kind of the relationship both of the, and the acknowledgement that we're gonna put it forward. It may not be perfect on day one, but we're gonna re- think about it, we're gonna review, we're gonna improve and we're gonna do it again as long as we're continuing to move towards shared goal.
0: One of the, some of the ways that P3s are described oftentimes is about moving risk away from the private sector, sorry, from the public sector and moving it onto the private sector. Sometimes it's characterized as a different uh, form of financing. A project. Um, I, those are the two that I know of best. In the case of something like Spin Mobility, how would you characterize it? Is it? I don't know. Does it fit? Into you,
1: two I, mean, options? I think your your two examples are examples of who you might ask. In the first example, if you ask an uh, an attorney, <laughs> a lawyer, <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a good where call. Where, the,
1: where where the risk is. In the second example, if you ask a, a financial planner or an, an economist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of, of where the, uh, the monetary contributions or the you know, revenue potential um, exists. And in the case of my example, I was a urban planner that learned how to do engineering. I kind of called myself a plan engineer because I was basically designing streets without an engineering background, but trying to challenge the assumptions in traffic engineering and then turned into a, a policymaker in the shared mobility realm. Um, and that's my view from, from that kind of evolution. So the I guess the urban planner slash policymaker, um, response to that question. But yeah, I mean, like your, your, um, your angle, on on the, the P3, the two that you mentioned are, are very valid, um, just different, different, uh, approach, <laughs> different, 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 uh, stakeholder.
0: Okay. So then let me ask you a different question. And again, I know you are generally have to be a fan of p3s because of the, the company you work for but they are controversial there's a lot of people there's a lot of bodies that that don't necessarily believe in them because they, they may have been burned or the public media has made something you know made a story out of uh, an initiative why do you believe that perhaps p3s have become so controversial um, nowadays
1: I mean, certainly looking back at the history of P3s, you can find examples of maybe corruption or, or abuse of that relationship. Um, and, and that's why we have such robust procurement policies, why um, the you know, contracts that we look at uh, with, our, with our partners are you know, north of 100 pages long because each clause is trying to right a wrong from a previous era. Um, And they feel as though this is the things we need private sector to sign on to, to feel that we have the assurances that they're not going to abuse their ability to um, store their product on our right of way or access our customer base or whatever it is that they're agreeing to. Um, I, I think as it relates to transportation and mobility, there's actually a lot of examples that P3s do it better than strictly publicly serviced and operated. If you look at some of the transit systems in Europe. Um, they actually contract out the train system to private companies to operate solely uh, on an annual contract that uh is has very high SLAs, but that's SLA. why uh, service level agreements basically, um, the expectation on how well the service will be run defined down to a few metrics that gives the the Governing body, the public agency, the ability to enforce and maybe collect damages if the um, service wasn't operated because they're representing the public. And uh, that's why, you know, like for example, Switzerland, trains never late.
0: Well, let me ask you a different question and still related to P3s. You had mentioned that sometimes, you know, corruption and things like that can really sour the taste on P3s. How, like, there's obviously a lack of transparency in the process and establishing these agreements and these the centers of excellence, I've, I've also been, I've, I've heard them referred to as, how would you perhaps fix P3s? Because we mentioned earlier um, Pronto and how it was perhaps a bad example, or bad execution of a P3. Would it be fair to say then that P3s are agnostic and they can be done well and they can be done poorly? But my question is then, how can we ensure that they're done well and that the public is kept informed that to, as to those SLAs and things of that nature. So there's no surprises.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think Pronto is a great example of a P3 with good intentions, trying both sides, trying to solve for a business model that, that wasn't able to live up to the expectations that um, were initially sold, both to the city from the industry And from both the city and the partner to the public in terms of the ability to recover revenue, um, to recover costs from revenue. For example, your average transit trip, if we get on a bus and take a trip, the amount we pay for our trip to the transit agency is typically around like 20 to 30% of the actual cost to serve that trip. The fare box recovery is pretty low for public transit. That means the rest of it is subsidized. And given that as a new technology, there were insurances on the um, uh, long-term viability, and there was an interest in bringing in sponsorship, there was an expectation to be able to recover a higher amount of that operating cost from rider rider revenue, basically like trips, customers paying for trips and sponsorship. And that ultimately didn't pan out kind of because of the design of the program, but the program was stretched across the city um, in order to attract more sponsors, uh, everything from the children's hospital in the Northeast part of the city, down to the center city, which is like probably eight miles away with only 50 stations. When the station-based technology, that means that the A to B trip combinations are so few. The, I mean, the, at the time, the recommendation from NACTO Um, NACDO is the the National Association of City Transportation Officials. So basically, it's the uh, association of DOTs, if you will. And um, their recommendation at the time was 28 stations per square mile.
0: That seems like a lot. Am I wrong in thinking this?
1: Yes, that's a lot. That is a that is a uh, standard that maybe applies to like Manhattan and San Francisco, but but probably not really feasible um, to other areas. And ultimately, dockless technology has challenged the need to really have this station based only mindset that I think was um, assumed at the time. Anyways, um, the design of the Pronto system meant that uh, it, it was predicated on a expansion a follow through of funds after the initial launch that would infill that density. And uh, it didn't ever got there. And so therefore the public perception of the program was really poor because of that fair box recovery was so low. Um, So that's, that was a challenge with communication, with system design, with understanding um, what the customer wants in a bike share system, but it's really hard to put that all on the team that launched that um, because This was the first time bike share was coming to Seattle. So, you know, lesson learned.
0: One of the things that I preach about quite a bit when it comes to open government, open data, particularly government transformation as a whole, is that you know as well as I do that the new methodology of the 21st century relies on failure, Mm -hmm. failing forward, you know, Mm -hmm. design, all that kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. unfortunately, when government fails, it's always a scandal. So government is afraid to try new things because they're afraid to fail because they don't want to be in the news. So I wonder, going back to the educational element, which is what you were talking about earlier, like teaching corporate citizens and teaching regular citizens on how to use these bikes. I mm-hmm. wonder if, if the world, if the media, if the citizens will eventually learn that government, it has to fail. I know it sucks, mm-hmm. but it has to fail right at the very least.
1: Yeah, certainly when we're trying to do something like change the um, transportation mindset and and breakdown of, of mode split that's been growing in the opposite direction that we want for decades, right? I mean, that's we have to take uh, um, a transportation environment and a land use that is designed for the private use of, of, of cars and challenge it to... Adopt a new um, uh, a, a, a new way of, of of moving, new way of thinking about our day to day trips, without being able to change our land use at a fast scale. I mean that the best transportation plan is is a good land use plan. Everyone knows that. You only can walk and bike if your trip facilitates that, and the average person doesn't want to walk, you know, more than two miles, or the average person doesn't want to bike more than seven miles on a daily commute and so if that's not possible then it has to be transit or some other mode and transit you know investments and availability is um is not the best in the average u.s city so when we're trying to introduce private innovation that really goes against the way we've done things previously that things down to as nuanced as whether you lock your bike to a rack or not um there's going to be some some failures and some challenges. I mean, it's the forming, storming, norming, and then performing, right? Uh, So the storming, you have to get through that before you can start to get yourself towards performing and really seeing these modes pick up a lot of that modes, that mode share, um, and hopefully give users, give urbanites the confidence that they can live without a car or or just commute downtown without a car and still be able to access all of their services on a daily basis basis. Um, that doesn't happen quickly. Uh, it ha- happens over the course of, of you know, years. And in the case where we introduce a lot of bikes and scooters quickly, maybe we can attract some folks pretty quickly to, to think about their daily commute in a different way.
0: On, on a somewhat related subject about sort of educating the public on, on these changes, what are your thoughts? Now, I know you're a cyclist, so at the very least, you like to show <laughs> pictures of yourself cycling. And uh, uh, but what are your thoughts on the uh, war on the car movement uh, in Toronto? I can tell you that anytime we talk about transit and putting in bike lanes and LRTs and take away taking away roads to put in mass transit. There's always that contingency of they're, mm. the war on the car. They're taking away our cars. Mm. Um, you work essentially for a car company. That- <laughs> I was gonna say,
1: they put him in quite the predicament. Um, it's actually a common misconception. I actually, am, I would not consider myself a cyclist. I, um, when I moved to Seattle, I didn't have a car. I didn't have a car for the first about five years I lived here, and now I have one car, and it's a camper van. It's a pain to drive anywhere and park. So it's mostly for me to get to the mountains and then back to my house, not really between the city. Um, so when I moved here, I borrowed my brother's bike and had a bus pass and I had access to more things than I ever did when I grew up in the suburbs of Pennsylvania with my own car. Um, that's mostly because I lived in a city, but I didn't need a car to access it. And a lot of times, because I was always kind of like trying to move the needle at Sdot dot on bike issues, bike lanes, bike parking, I even designed and printed the bike map every year um, folks thought like, so what do you got? Hey, Kyle, what are you gonna do this weekend? you going on a bike ride? Like, no, no. I I bike seven miles to and from work every day. I'm good on biking. Um, so, uh, common misconception, but yes, there are, are, there are a few photos floating around with me on a, on a road bike. So I understand that's a easy one to, uh, misconstrue. Um, anywho on, on your question, um, the war on cars, I mean, it's, I think it's a, um, excessively polarizing phrase to describe what we're doing uh obviously cars are a part of our transportation fabric they're a part of the transportation fabric in the 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 best cities for getting around without a car they're still cars Um, they have a a tremendous use case for all kinds of trips and especially when you're considering carrying extra luggage Um, uh, the the challenge that we're facing is the you know the, the the environment climate change the fact that most cars use gas um but even if we had all electric cars the safety of our streets the equity of our transportation system the cost to access a personal car and maintain it especially if it's an electric car especially with the availability of charging i mean these are things that are really available to a privileged uh sector of our society and we need to plan for everyone. So with safety, with equity, with sustainability in mind, they all point to uh, the same thing, which is a transportation ecosystem that has a better balance between use of the private car or the shared car versus transit versus walking biking, scooter, one wheel, skateboard, whatever you want but as long as it's helping more folks access the services and the needs they have um, in a way that they can sustain. And and ultimately if you're going to store your private car on public land in a high demand part of a city, that should come at a cost. That's we pay fees and and permit costs for every other type of storage um, in the public land. So I think it's just a new paradigm that we're trying to, bring to cities. And by we, I mean like most people working in transportation, not just myself for S that or SPIN, um, but pretty much all folks really um, jazzed by the, the changes in the transportation world.
0: No, it's fascinating what you bring up, which is essentially this, this concept of the first mile and the last mile of transportation, right? In mass transit, it's, it's easy to get on, on a bus or a streetcar or subway, whatever, but you gotta get to that station. Or a regional transit uh, that, you know, for example, in Ontario, we have Go Transit. Um, Mm -hmm. It's Getting to that stop and then eventually getting at the other end to your place of where you're going to be working. Mm -hmm. And I think if I'm correct in thinking this, what Spin is trying to do and a lot of companies like yourselves are trying to do is to solve that first mile and last mile problem. And Whatever that means is, and from an urban planning perspective, you have to give people options. Whether that it's the car, whether you, you you're not a cyclist yourself but you use a bicycle as transit as a transit mm-hmm. means or a scooter or something like that. Am I wrong in 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 making this assumption? That I think I painted myself into a corner here. So just <laughs> go. <laughs>
1: I, I, I appreciate you uh, stretching outside your comfort zone on the uh, the nuances of the transportation world. No, it's, it's totally fine. I, I know where you're going with this. So okay. yeah, the last mile problem, right? It's like the existential crisis of transportation. How do you get people to transit? Um, a simple way to think about it is if you, and this is kind of core to any trans- transit master plan, which is, well, that's what we call it in Seattle, the transit master plan. But every city has their own like long range plain uh, document that's renewed on a five or 10 year basis to think like, how are people getting around? Are we doing the right things? Are the investments we're making today going to help our goals for 20 years from now? And Seattle, the way we think about that, when I was at Estad, and, you know, now living in the city as a citizen is that um, does the transit network provide access to uh, the majority of the population, some percentage, 95% of the population within a five or 10 minute walk of their residence. So taking the investments you have or the, the network you have today and the investments you can make, can you extend the reach of the transit network so that everyone has access to a bus or a train um, within a five, 10 minute walk. Now take a bike or a scooter and that five or 10 minutes Uh, the the geography covered by that gets a lot bigger, right? So we can basically take a much bigger population and say, okay, you can access that train station within a five or 10 minute connection. And that is very encouraging for that user choosing transit because transit in dense cities in the U S is usually faster than driving, especially in cities that have uh, choke points uh, like Seattle does. I mean, you can't really commute anywhere without going over a body of water and that means you get on a bridge and that bridge is just uh, back-to-back congestion so um that's a huge element i think it's the biggest buzzword about the, the solution we're bringing to cities however especially right now during the pandemic a lot of folks are not commuting they're not going to long distances from their neighborhood to downtown and they're just making trips around their neighborhood right they have maybe a few different destinations um that they see go weekly grocery store, pharmacy, um, a park where they wanna go and get some fresh air. And, and um, in, I, I live in a moderately dense neighborhood, um, kind of like where the urban core of Seattle starts to really leak into what I would call like suburban land use, but still within the city of Seattle. And um, these destinations for me range from anywhere from half a mile to like probably two or three miles and i can get to all of them without having to drive a car which is great because parking my camper van in downtown ballard which is my neighborhood would be a pain in the butt (laughs) um yeah so i think that's that's a new paradigm to think about micromobility is that folks aren't just connecting to transit they're actually just accessing all their services um that they have because now they live within the bubble of their neighborhood um given that the pandemic is discouraging transit use in in offices.
0: I want to ask you a question real quick about open data, because at the very least in Toronto, uh, there have been some hubbub about releasing ridership data from our bike sharing program. um, Does SPIN release its ridership data as open data?
1: We do not. Um, So that's an interesting um, paradigm change between that public bike share model versus the private one i'm glad you bring this up so often well actually most systems uh pronto included there was like a quarterly um report put out uh and you could actually download the data set and you could access sometimes at a trip level i even believe we had um access to where folks were going and and because the technology was all on the station not on the bike you can only see start and end trip you couldn't see the breadcrumb of where the user went um on their route um with private uh, bike share, spe- or bike and scooter share, especially where we have vendors competing within markets, it's much more sensitive info because of the um, competition. So, if customer, if our competitors are aware of the certain geographies in which we are capturing a lot of good market um, based off of our our operations and our intelligence, then they could potentially try to compete with us in that way. So, that's part of. There's a different um, relationship with open data when you think about multiple vendors competing in a market versus one publicly funded system in the market. Very different. And I, I think it's a really important nuance for policymakers to think and get right because open data is important. We need to have the right access for folks to be able to um, do all the things that, that they can with open data and and challenge folks to think in new ways. And, you know, this is Certainly, um, this podcast has many examples of how open data has solved, solved problems, but that the, the value of our service and our, of our company um, could be degraded a lot if our really granular ridership data is exposed. Now, there's a second thing to consider, which is the user's privacy. And despite uh, there being assurances built into the data, obviously, it's anonymous, We don't even have a common um, user ID uh, in the mobility data specification. Let me pause. Mobility data specification is the um, data spec used to share data between private micromobility companies and cities. And even though that data set, so so that data set is probably the closest thing to what the public could gain access to because given FOIA policies, Freedom of Information Act, that is something that cities have access to. They typically have access to it in a, dashboard format where it's aggregated, but some cities choose to ingest those API endpoints themselves. Um, Even in in the example of where a city is receiving this data feed directly and they have individual trips, you know, a field for each trip, there's still potential uh, for re-identifying users without a uh, a name or even a, 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 a proxy for the user's name um in the thread and studies have shown this like uh, unique in the crowd um which is a study uh from i don't know i think five or ten years ago that showed that with a data set of taxi trips in new york city with no user names attached and other sources of information available online social media other records they were able to re-identify a significant portion of the of the users who were in this database um, and that's, that's really concerning because if someone is maybe taking job interviews or going somewhere that they wouldn't want um, certain individuals to know, then, then that should be private info. And you actually see this baked into GDPR, the, the European standard for, for data privacy. So I, I think it's really important when we have this private um, mobility services being operated in our cities that we both think about the proprietary challenges and the privacy of our users and uh we tried to get that right with the initial saddle permit in 2017 and a lot of the principles that were thankfully we had really good partners at the university of washington and um the a lot of the principles that were set down then have now been reflected in what is a really good working industry of of data um spec uh, data aggregators between us and the city and data storage. So I think that's a a really important piece. It's quite nuanced, but it's really important for folks, uh, especially folks interested in this podcast.
0: Well, you're so right. And um, it's something that I've had a conversation with, with many different stakeholders in the past. And the way I usually answer sort of the concerns that you've presented is I always personally viewed open data more in the, the way that I view a hammer, a hammer in that 99% of the time hammers are used to put up frames and build houses and things of that nature. But you'll have that 1% of the population that will use it to jam it in somebody's skull and break into a car. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have hammers. Uh, Same thing, like cars kill tons of people every year, but we're not going to get rid of cars. We build regulations, we build laws, we build things around it to to protect ourselves from those quote unquote evildoers. so i think yeah there's those nuances are we can't ignore those nuances and i i feel confident that the open government open data community community are not ignoring those because they're so very important if we're going to have safe cars if we're going to have you know laws against killing people with hammers sort of like how they added seat belts in cars eventually and airbags things of that nature uh our time is closing um and I want to do, I've never done it before. You're actually the first person I'm going to do it with is a bit Uh-oh. of a rapid fire <laughs> session, a rapid okay. fire session. And, and uh, we start off easy. And since you are from Seattle, uh, mm-hmm. some of them are Seattle centric, as well mm. as to relevant to some of your hobbies. But I don't want to spoil the answers that you're going to get. <laughs> we're going we're to go right into it. All right. So you ready? Let's do it. Chocolate or vanilla? Chocolate. Pearl Jam or Nirvana? Nirvana. Tacos or fajitas?
1: Oh, fajitas. <laughs> gosh, uh,
0: gosh. All right. And this is one that I caught you on. What is the correct pronunciation? Hockey or ice hockey?
1: <laughs> um, ice hockey because some people oh, make it, yeah. <laughs> get it confused with field hockey, which happens... Only when you're really talking to folks in England but I've been doing a lot of these days uh, but, but yeah yeah definitely clarify the uh, the type of, of hockey I appreciate that
0: yes yes it's <laughs> funny because I play I've been playing ball hockey for about 20 years and ah yes yeah and and I, and people say oh you play in the street no no, no that's street hockey street hockey yeah. and ball hockey are two very they're, different very things. different yeah very yeah,
1: different yeah. so I'm guessing you're a Maple East fan
0: to be honest with you, I'm actually a much bigger Raptors fan. I, I, I follow hockey okay. uh, more as a passive yeah. sort of observer. And, you know, sure, go, leaves, go. But the Raptors are definitely uh, sort of my team. And, and the Blue Jays are starting to, to come around that way.
1: All Fair right, enough.
0: Continuing. Uh, so since, because you are a hockey player, mm-hmm. you, or at least you used to play hockey. I got to ask still, you this. Question. I still do. You still do? Okay. Or yeah, ice yeah. hockey.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> uh, Gretzky or Lemieux. Gretzky.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah. You keep uh, yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: I just, I, uh, I, Gretzky, uh, yeah, we won't go into that. That's another podcast on its own. All Definitely right. Gretzky.
0: Lemieux still <laughs> got more points per game than Gretzky. We'll just say it's that. It's true. It's true. All right. Uh, King Griffey Jr. or Russell Wilson?
1: Griffey. That's swing.
0: Oh, that was a sweet, sweet swing for sure. S-
1: sweet. Just like a fine one.
0: Uh, uh, mountain bike. Road bike or hybrid?
1: Ooh, whoa. Um, I'm going to go hybrid because sometimes you just ride around the city and all of a sudden the terrain gets rough. Um, I, I, I have gone mountain biking only a couple of times and it's been pretty painful. So I like, <laughs> to, I like to keep to the asphalt when possible, but sometimes you need a, you need a little versatile in your, uh, your, your wheel, especially your wheel size in the city.
0: Mm, no kidding. Uh- Riding your bike to work in the morning uphill or riding your bike home at night uphill?
1: For Seattle, I highly recommend uphill to work because it's so cold in the morning, usually, especially in the winter when it's like a little bit drizzly. It doesn't rain that hard, but it's like always kind of raining, but it's mostly just cold. And in that uphill, it like you don't even need your coffee, it wakes you up and you get warm. And then after work, you just spent, right? I mean, you just built like 40 bike lanes and you're just like done and you might as well just cruise on downhill. All right.
0: Um, First mile or last mile?
1: First mile. Your last mile, hopefully your transit station is close enough that you can just hop right into your office.
0: (laughs) And uh, the last one, open data or open data?
1: For me, it's data, but... I probably myself go back and forth with some data and data. I don't know. What is yours? What, do you, what would you say?
0: This is actually interesting because I have come to learn because I was like you. I would switch back and forth, mm-hmm. right? Um, apparently, data is the Queen's English way and data is the US way. Oh. Huh. Yeah. So uh, when you're saying data, you're actually speaking Canadian to a certain extent.
1: <laughs> learn something new every day
0: yeah this is something that i just learned myself like maybe yeah, a handful yeah. of weeks ago so that concludes sort of the rapid fire section and and to be honest our time is up you've already given us a ton of your time and there are so many more questions that i would that actually have written for you um do you have maybe five more minutes to talk about something called the pittsburgh mobility collective because that's yeah. really interesting
1: yeah, let's do it. I have definitely five more minutes.
0: Okay, so yes, there's something called the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective.
1: Yep. Um,
0: it seems fascinating online, but I want you to give me the details.
1: Yeah, for sure. So um, about a year ago, sometime in 2019, the city of Pittsburgh um, put out a RFP asking for a consortium of mobility operators to come to the city with a program that could meet their goals this is so uh relevant to the conversation we had earlier about p3s where they basically said these are our goals we want to work with not just a sole provider or and we don't want to just replicate what we've seen happen around the u.s and where it's a uh copy and paste of some of the city's permit in a little um siloed competitive environment of this bike and scooter industry but we want to see private mobility providers work together and offer us something that that meets these goals. And they stated their their goals for the for the city. So what we did is we um, developed a consortium of providers called the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective and included Waze Carpool, um, Transit App, Zipcar, Swift Mile, which provides charging for light electric vehicles. Um, and we have Populous providing the data aggregation, which is part of the conversation we just had about taking private mobility data, aggregating it, summarizing it, and giving the city a view that is safe for the public and for the private company. Um, and we offered them the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective and they chose us. We were really grateful. We have um, a lot of work to do before we can launch because one of the challenges, one of the many challenges is that scooters are still not legal in Pennsylvania because of outdated vehicle code. That was the case for many states. Um, when scooters hit the street, but Pennsylvania is one of the few that still hasn't um, updated their vehicle code. Um, But we've already made tons of progress. We've installed some uh, charging stations near transit stops in Pittsburgh already, basically ready for the service to hit the ground. So we're creating this mobility hub concept where we're taking transit stations that currently serve the the basic needs of accessing public transit and modernizing them to make that transfer from a a port authority um, bus or train to a scooter or a bike or um, a zip car seamless and we're balancing those modes based off of the location whether it's in the urban core or in um, the neighborhood to you know focus on the type of trip distances that you would expect in those different um, urban environments so Uh, what we're doing is we're working collaboratively between these private mobility providers and offering what you could call like a mobility as a service program where um, a user has access to all their modes within one platform. And they're all gonna be aggregated in the transit app. So transit app was also part of our consortium and they are a multimodal trip planner. And you will be able to access a port authority, which is the local transit system, uh, a port authority bus, and a spin scooter in the same app and take your payment all together. So you can access a bus to a scooter, one payment, connect those trips, um, which the, the reason that this is exciting is because it makes that, um, when you take all the, the ac- all the trips done by urban uh, you know, the commuters in their car and you say, okay, we wanna take away your car and we wanna give you these options to make living without a car feasible, it makes a lot of sense. You've got your transit for your long haul trips. You've got walking, scooting, and biking for your short trips. Uh, maybe you have car share for intermediate trips or the random time where you need to bring something back from the hardware store or something. But one of the challenges for folks is that like the onboarding of all these apps and these, these accounts and all the rules associated with all these different shared systems, some are public, some are private, some are super expensive, some are cheap. Um, is is really challenging. And so if we can bring it in a really simple way into one platform, the trip planning is done for them, their preferences for how far they would like to bike before getting to a transit stop or their comfortable distance of walking or their relationship with biking up huge hills um, or their preferred use of scooters can be kind of built into their trip preferences that we can make that living without a car really seamless and easy. And that's a challenging thing to do. A lot of companies, uh, well, primarily um, the big TNC companies have tried to do this kind of in what we call a walled garden, where they have like a uh, kind of create a monopoly by having um, top to bottom st- uh, product stack of all of these services within their app to so stay in their ecosystem. And instead, this is um, more of a, uh, a collective effort of saying us individual private companies each want to focus on our product, but we want to work together because we think that our collective effort will meet the city's goals and make it appealing to the customer. So that's the vision of the Pittsburgh mobility collective. It's branded as move 412 for the public. Um, It's, it's going to hit the streets in 2021. We couldn't be more excited. We've been working for a long time with the city, with public, with the community um, to get this thing rolled out in a way that I think reflects it. a a responsible p3 it's much slower than i think your average scooter company would like to get to launch but we're in it for the long haul and it's going to be incredible when it launches
0: and this is a perfect way to wrap up our conversation because we all we began the conversation talking about the collaborative approach and and taking a much more sort of holistic way of consulting with the public instead of coming in and barging in like an uber would we're going to do this right we're going to be transparent we're going to be accountable We're going to make sure that we're not wasting taxpayer dollars. Unfortunately, it does take a bit of time, but it's great to see that a company like Spin is Around has the value system to make sure to to work with the public and to work with city officials to make it happen. So on that behalf, or on the behalf of potential future Toronto (laughs) Mobility Collective uh, uh, constituents, uh, thank you for that.
1: Yeah, we we hope to be in Toronto soon. It's actually... Definitely one of the markets we're really interested in, and you guys have a great leader in your tra- transportation services division. Um, the general manager, Barbara Gray, came from Seattle. She oh. wrote she wrote our pedestrian master plan. She uh, championed the Division Zero ordinance in Seattle. Um, so, and and now she's leading the transportation services uh, uh, department uh, in Toronto, um, and that's great. We we are we're really hopeful to to bring scooters and um, our shared sure services to try soon we'll see
0: uh, i'm crossing my fingers because much like you i don't have a car i do have a mm. motorcycle but it's like your camper it's only for <laughs> me to go out and have fun with it's actually a touring motorcycle not a
1: cool motorcycle. that sounds fun
0: oh I've, I've taken it twice across canada and uh it's,
1: whoa across the whole wow That's and one impressive. sitting
0: in one sitting three months
1: and what was the best what's the best part of canada It was the most most beautiful part.
0: Well, obviously you can talk about the mountains, right? Obviously going into the the Rockies, but I was, go ahead.
1: British Columbia or Alberta? Which one though?
0: I think they're more into British Columbia that way. Mm -hmm. But I was shocked about how beautiful this tiny little town bordering the province of Manitoba and the province of Ontario, tiny little town called Kenora. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you have a chance, and this is how beautiful Kenora is. It is so beautiful that we sold parts of the region to the U.S. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Look at a map. Look at a map of Minnesota and look for something called Lake of the Woods, I believe it's called. And the natural border of what would be between Canada yes, and the U.S. I know
1: of this. Yes, yeah, it juts. it's yeah. because it's because of poor mapping. When they were originally drawing the border no, between the U.S. and Canada, no. wasn't the legend was covering the map and they, they missed the line.
0: No, I've spoken oh. to people living in Kenora. Actually, that's how I learned about it when I drove through Kenora. They said, no, we sold this like a, hundreds of years wow. ago to the US. And, uh, and obviously the, the rhetoric back there is because it's so beautiful. They wanted it for the rich people. Mm. And, but you know exactly what I'm referring to. So Kenora was a beautiful part of, of, of Canada that I didn't know. I just thought it was a mining town, like so many mining towns in Northern Ontario. So that, was, um, that one really surprised me.
1: I spend a lot of time in, in Squamish and yeah, Humberton yeah, yeah. And, uh, and Revelstoke uh, doing Revelstoke. Various, ma- various mountain activities. And uh, I mean, British Columbia, it's the most beautiful uh, part of North America, in my opinion. Um, but uh, Washington, maybe a close second.
0: <laughs> well, I have no doubts that we could have a longer conversation about this, especially with those living in Vancouver.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All they right. Many
0: sorry sorry i keep taking too much of your time i do apologize for that um but tell the people uh, how they can get a hold of you how they can learn about spin twitter accounts websites that kind of stuff
1: i'll be honest i'm not the most active on twitter but i have do have a account it's um at k row four so k-r-o-w-e four um and let's see i mean the spin blog i think is really the best place to figuring out what we're up to, what the latest data um, analysis is we're doing, what's the latest program we're, we're launching. Um, lots of great stories there. Um, but hopefully you can just find us by finding a scooter and, uh, and telling us how your trip was.
0: All right, well, thank you so much, Kyle, for, for joining us today and sharing your thoughts on advancing government collaboration with the public. And we wish you the best of luck in the future.
1: Thank you, it was great chatting with you and uh, hope to, to come back again.
0: Awesome. And as usual, I want to thank our audience for listening. And please leave a rating or a comment on how we can make the podcast better, or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.